Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed, y'all. Miss Van Plating song called Jesus Save Me on the Radio. This is Twyla Twang, and I think we have Miss Van Plating on the other line. Do we not? I'm here. Yay. Awesome. Uh, let me uh, give the folks a little rundown of what they've been listening to, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, we just played a That's little it. set. Uh, we started off at the top of the program with Orange Blossom Child from the, uh, actually, the that's the title of the album and uh, just mm-hmm. released here in, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and then we played Lasso from the 2021 self-titled album. And then Jesus Saved Me on the Radio. And, well, thank you. Thank you so much, man, for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's great to chat again. It wasn't even that long ago. We uh, got to see each other in person. And how, how was Americana Fest for you? Wow, it was such a whirlwind. It always is, you know. It's a it's a it's a jam packed week. I'm sure you probably left feeling like it took you a week to process all that you saw and heard, and that's certainly um, how I feel. And you know, I I had a few performances, met up with a bunch of friends. Um, it, it always feels like the entire uh, Americana contingent of the whole industry is there and everybody's trying to see everybody in like a span of four or five days (laughs) (laughs) so it was great it was busy um and it was wonderful to come in having this new album having just it had only been out the friday before uh going into nashville so it was a lot of fun to be able to finally talk about all the songs you know and have them out in the open uh, while everyone was there well, congratulations on that release. Uh, I can't. Thank well, you. tell us. I mean, how that must feel because you have worked so hard and and kind of well, not solo, but a lot of lot of hard work went into this. And how's it feel to have it out in the world? It feels uh, equally ecstatic and just daunting. Like, well, I've done this now. I'm <laughs> like, what's next? I'm very much a um, I, I, I'm trying to learn to be more of a person who sits with things, you know, <laughs> once I've climbed the mountain. But this particular hill was very, very, very large. And, you know, as you know, um, I produced it and engineered um, myself. And, you know, that was definitely, man, that's the first time I've done it without a second pair of hands, you know, in, in the mix. Um but yeah, it was a lot of work. And of course, it's very on brand for me. If, if any of your listeners are familiar with my work or been following me at all, it's very on brand for me to like, instead of like dipping a toe into something, like if I'm going to self-produce without, you know, an engineer or co-producer, maybe it would have been easy to do most of the parts myself. But instead of being a normal person, I invited over 30 people to play on it. <laughs> You took the hard way, didn't you? <laughs> yes. Yes. Through the life. I lived my lyrics for real. <laughs> um, well, and it was wonderful. It, it, it sure did turn out fine, fine. Every track, top to bottom. Um, and I do want to dive into the specifics. Before we get there, um, I, I'm, There's, uh, from what I've read, you've kind of crafted, created a, a new genre, right? Orange Blossom Country. Yeah. How would you define, yes. or, oh, excuse me, Orange Blossom Country? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I wanted to 
you know, when, when you're traveling around and describing your art and meeting people, you want to be able to give them something that immediately, like, without having to explain yourself for 10 minutes, something that will immediately give them a picture and a sense of who you are. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it occurred to me, you know, the more I've gotten into the country music scene and, and knowing more folks in, in Texas and in the Red Dirt community and all of that stuff, like if I say Red Dirt Country, you're going to come up with a couple artists just right off the bat that you think of, mm-hmm. you know, or traditional country, different things like that. And as I started working on my thought process, before I even wrote a single song for this, I wanted to take my opportunity to make a third album and make something that was specific enough that people would know what they were getting into before they even hit play, you know. Um, and so I started thinking about the different artists that come from where I'm from. You know, you've got Graham Parsons and Gamble Rogers and Tom Petty and Leonard Skinner and all of these, like, really interesting sort of left of center. But, you know, these are landmark artists in country and in rock and roll and roots music. And I wanted to kind of pull from that heritage and naming it Orange Blossom Country. I mean, you say Orange Blossoms, you're immediately going to think of Florida, mm-hmm. you know, um, and putting country on it, you automatically know I'm a roots-based artist. Um, and so that that has made it easier, you know, to yeah. just say, well, this is, this is what I sound like. And people go in, and when they hear the songs, they're like, okay, I'm hearing... I'm hearing where this came from, and it makes sense for it to be called that. Yes, yes. Well, you're, now you're from Florida, and I understand mm-hmm. um, your childhood was really full, a hugely, deeply influential family upbringing and, you know, picking circles and a, a long mm-hmm. uh, history of playing and singing. Uh, when did you, you're, you play violin, fiddle, and voice, when did you mm-hmm. start playing the violin? I was three years old. Three. <laughs> um, yeah, my mother, my mother uh, wanted me to have an instrument. She, she's she's very much a planning type of person. So her thinking was, put me on an instrument really young, and then when I grow up, you know, it's something I'll always be able to do. You know, mm-hmm. for she wasn't thinking I'd do it professionally or anything, um, but she definitely put me in the lessons, and then. Music was just always a thread in our house. She played gospel piano. My dad's a guitar player. But then the picking circles, those were probably, those were probably the biggest influence on me because I was just this little tiny kid and my granddad and his brothers had a bluegrass band. And this is, this is rural Florida, which is, there are still pockets of it, but in, in central Florida, especially, it is disappearing very, very quickly. But back then, you know, Eustace was just a citrus town and, you know, people went fishing on the weekends and had vegetable gardens because that's how they could afford to eat vegetables, you know. And mm-hmm. on the weekends, we'd go fishing and then we'd play bluegrass. And, um, you know, it was just, it was interwoven into our life. Music was just always going. There was always, in my granddad's house, he always had his guitar out and he was always picking something and they just, it was almost by osmosis, but also not because of the lessons, you know, my mom was very much like, 
you have to practice every day. And she told me I could quit when I graduated high school if I wanted to quit. <laughs> I'm telling you. So didn't. you can imagine, yeah, from <laughs> three years old to 17, you're probably not going to quit at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I know you're also a, a mother of four. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, um, amazing to me that you've, you do all this. Um, I'm wondering how, how has your kind of past familial ties and musical bonds informed you as a mother? I mean, like, you know, what music, what mm-hmm. role does music play when you're all hanging out with your kids, family union? Oh, man. You know, that's a, such an interesting question. I'd love to ask my kids what they think uh, about that. Uh-huh. Um, because that would be interesting to hear their perspective. Something that's been really beautiful to see um, music weaving more into our life is since the pandemic, you know, my writing room used to be uh, at a place away from the house. It wasn't here at home. Mm-hmm. And so it was about, man, my concept of time is shot. Um, it was during the pandemic when, you know, things were shut down. I guess this must have been 2020. And um, it, you know, looked like we were going to be shut down for a while. And that's when I decided, okay, well, if I'm not going to be able to tour, you know, my spring plans had fallen through just like everyone else's. I said, I'm going to have to just start working from home. And fast forward three years and it's become, the kids know all my songs and they're part of the process now. And what a lot of, a lot of my peers might have thought would be chaotic. And it is it's tough, you know, to, to figure out balance and especially when they're all at home in the summer. But I love the idea that they're growing up being around this stuff yeah. um, because they're a part of it. Like they know the stories and they know the songs. And then, you know, if they want to pick up instruments, some of them have my two middle daughters play piano. My oldest is very much a, like a theater kid and visual artist kind of budding artist in, in training. And, my son, he's seven. I have no idea. Um, but it's just really neat to see, uh, rather than before when, I, if I was playing shows, I was away from home. And if I was writing music, I was away from home. And, you know, we always have music on in the kitchen or whatever. But as far as, like, the day-to-day, this is more similar to me growing up and, you know, having my parents just have it out and see the practice of it. And I think that that's really special. And I hope they hold on to those oh. memories. It uh, it does sound very very special, and that's something like you, it's interwoven. It will not be taken out of the fabric of who they are. That's mm-hmm. super super cool. Uh, well, let, let's dive into Orange Blossom Child. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, I I've always been a fan. Well, I think mean, I think one of my first favorite albums was Skinnered Pronounced, and you know that mm-hmm. there's that kind of greasy gritty the the mm-hmm. swamp boogie swamp funk. Groove. Yes, yes. I love yes. it. Um, but yet with, with your work, it's really uniquely yours. And I love, in the liner note you wrote, buckle up and settle in. Let me take you back <laughs> to a time when you had a place to go. You had no place mm-hmm. to go, but wanted to get there fast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no place to go. Wanted to get there fast. Uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so uh, about the kind of the, the beginning of the genesis and the creation of this album i know it's deeply personal um you tweaked a lot i know you you changed words and you worked with folks how did you get to the point where you knew you were done editing and tweaking 
Oh, man. Um, maybe when I had the final deadline. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> to get it off to the mixer. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that has been, it's been specific to each song, you okay. know, because some of the songs have a lot less instrumentation than others. Um, lyrically, some of them sort of came out fully formed and others didn't, you know, like the heron almost wrote itself, but it was the last song and I knew I wanted a song that would sort of capture what the whole album was about, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and so that sort of wrote itself, but then others, um, like the song Hole in My Chest, the one that features Kirby Brown, that one I rewrote it almost completely uh, from a musical standpoint. Um, because it didn't sit right with the rest of the songs. And so it ended up being a very stripped down aesthetic for that song. And when I got Kirby's vocals back in and I got the accordion part in, I just knew like adding anything else to it was going to ruin the the sort of beautiful fragility of what it was. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, every single song is very feel based for me. It would almost be hard for me to explain how I knew it was done, except it just felt like this doesn't need anything else and I better drop it and walk away and go to the next thing, you know, and that's a very intuitive process, I think, for most artists and producers. Yes, and I I can hear and see how it would be kind of on a case-by-case basis, Mm -hmm. depending on the song and the Mm -hmm. artist and their collaborations. Your role as Mm -hmm. a sole producer, what's the biggest challenge about, I know, you know, without a second set of hands and ears and... Mm -hmm. I would say it's probably twofold, you know, because being producer is one thing, right? The, your producer, they're in charge of the leadership of the project, um, casting a vision and then making sure we reach that vision, inspiring the collaborators and people who are participating in the vision. The engineering doesn't always go with that title. Engineer mm-hmm. is a different job. I had to do both for this. Mm-hmm. And I think the tough, the two tough things for me with this project were, number one, you know, staying inspired when there wasn't someone else there. When I was re- tracking my parts, I didn't have a cheerleader. You know, like I didn't have someone say, you can do it or lean into this word more yeah. or free your mind or you know, mm-hmm. any of those wonderful things that, that I do when I'm tracking other people or, or that I've had done for me in the past. At the same time, though, the level of freedom I was able to achieve really, really paid off. It was it was worth having to lean in to the solitude of being in that role for myself because it removed any sort of doubt, um, self-doubt or doubt cast on the vision by, by another teammate who might not understand what I'm going for. You know, because I was doing it on my own, I was really, really able to be ruthless to myself when it came to following that vision and not compromising and not giving in if I was uncomfortable or scared of the choice or whether I thought I could pull something off. And, you know, this is a very big album. I mean, there's like, there's so many instruments and and so much in every single arrangement. And for me, that was a very daunting challenge to be the person in charge of all of that editing, you know, to sit in front of the computer and get these contributions from you know musicians that 
we've grown up listening to their work on other people's recordings and then be able to have the confidence to chop it apart and turn it into something. Um, Yeah, that was really big for me. Um, So I would say it was that. It was the the actual, the aloneness, right, of, of being in that role and then also just the sheer workload of the computer work, which is just not my favorite thing. It <laughs> never will be my favorite thing. But we can do hard things. Yes, we you can. You know? Well, and it's, I love because it's it's such a, like a true, honest reflection of exactly you. You know, there's there's really, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's all you. And I, I can yeah. imagine how rewarding that is. Those collaborations, girl. What? Yes. <laughs> 32? Yes. <laughs> It snowballed. It, <laughs> I kept, <laughs> you know, you think, I've said this in a couple of conversations now about this album, but it bears repeating. When you put an ask out there into the world, you, you know, anytime you're trying to accomplish something big, you're not going to just put out one. Usually you'll put out a bunch of asks and you'll get a couple of yeses. And what kept happening is everybody said yes. And it was like a dizzying amount of people saying yes. And I had to just rise to the occasion and figure it out, you know? <laughs> wow. Well, you obviously did and pulled in. Uh, I, I've got to, I, I, the one I was not familiar with, I'm, I feel, well, several actually. Um, mm-hmm. uh, John Corneal. Yes. That was a yes. really, what a colorful character. I looked him up and um, maybe touch on him briefly. I also feel like yes. I'm really late to the party for the Boys Club for Girls and Crystal, um, Crystal Bowersocks and... So, yes. so many great artists. So yeah, put, let's jump into John in a minute and then uh, the others if you'd like. Yeah. Okay. So John is such a character. Anybody who's listening, please Google John Cornell and you will find out all sorts of things about <laughs> someone who is really, he's really one of the founders of country rock and roll music. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's tragically undersung, I think, um, because, you know, Graham's name is on everything, and John was right there, a part of so many of these landmark albums um, back in the 60s and the 70s. So John Corneal uh, was a drummer. Um, he was Graham Parsons' first drummer for Flying Burrito Brothers and for the International Submarine Band. He also um, played all the drums on The Birds, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Uh, and he's credited... Uh, with being the creator of, of country rock music, yeah. uh, which is, you know, kind of a really big deal. More that's, people should know who he is. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, it's a really big deal. And so I had known there was this kind of colorful, quirky character that played every Friday at the coffee shop down the street from me. And it, it's it's a very, it, it's like a known tradition here in Lakeland. John Cornell. Uh, and his compadres, that's what he calls the band, and they're just a bunch of friends of his. They come and sit in every week, and he plays uh, two sets every Friday at Hillcrest Coffee. And I had no idea who he was, uh, because like I said, he, his name doesn't come up nearly enough I- a- as it should, uh, considering his contributions to music. But I noticed this like fabulous character sitting behind the drums. He sits, he holds his guitar, and he plays the drums at the same time. <laughs> and I, just he's like resplendent in like turquoise, and he's got 
he always wears at least like three bolo ties at a time and these magnificent sets and ha- like he is he is a sight to behold yes. and then add the music to it and he's in this this coffee shop and he has this fan base that like they all come and they camp out you know and they play cards and listen to him talk and he tells stories from all his good old days uh, from touring the 60s and 70s and it is it's just a scene man and I finally put together who he was from reading a magazine article. Um, I think it was the summer of 2022. Uh, a magazine called Haven did an article on music in Polk County in the 60s. And he was quoted in there. And I went, oh, my gosh, that's who that guy is. That's dude. <laughs> that's who that is. And then I thought, at this point, this was probably May of that year, the album was just very much nothing was made yet i had just started having the idea for what i wanted to do and i thought how fun would it be to like hang out with him get to know him and then like maybe maybe he'd be willing to play some music maybe not but regardless like i should spend some time with him because holy cow these people are they're dying off you know all the time and i'd love to just get to know him and learn from him and so um i showed up one day to his friday set and we sat down outside and caught up and Thankfully, he liked my hat, so I'm <laughs> starting pointing. He pulled my hat off and said, is that a Stetson? I said, no, sir, I wish it was. I couldn't afford And uh, we just had this great little chat, and we ended up getting lunch at the Mexican restaurant that's his favorite here in town a couple times, and I asked him if he'd like to play, and he thought about it for a minute, and then he said, yes, he absolutely would, and so he played on uh, Joel Called the Ravens and um, Zion is a Woman, and I still can't believe that I managed to pull that off and that he was down to do it, um, but yeah, yeah. He's, just, he's, an, he's an incredible person, and I really wanted to use this opportunity to give honor to, to the folks who've come before me, you know, yeah. and he's still alive and here. So it was really special to have him be part of it. That is awesome. Well, I, you must have just a, well, I, I've experienced that too, because I've been watching you do some of those tracks on Instagram as you've been building this. Mm-hmm. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, there's an openness to you. I think that I pick mm-hmm. up and I wonder if that's, you know, that, that nobody, why, why would they say no? You know, you're just like, yeah. hey, this is this is what I like to do, and and everybody's mm-hmm. jumping on board, and my, we could we could talk a whole another half hour just about all the collaborations. Uh, specifically, yeah. I do wanna, um, want to. I'm wondering about those collaborations. So how did you match up the guests with the songs? I did the songs first, okay, and that made it easier. So um, every song that you hear on the record, it was done down to the point where it was even mixed before I reached out to the guests. So I knew how it was going to sound before we went ahead and got somebody in the studio to put a guest vocal or a guest part on it. I see. And I think that that helped a lot because I knew, you know, for instance, the Sugar Palm Club, I knew I wanted, once it was done, it had gone from feeling kind of Rolling Stones-ish to very, very much like maybe something Shania Twain would have done in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, oh, our friend Shelby Lee Lowe, he's got this great kind of 90s alt-country vocal. Let's invite him to do that. And so it was very much like an organic process of getting getting people who naturally would lean into what it already sounded like, and then they were able to just 
you know, kind of go by the feel of the song. Um, just like Boys Club for Girls, I had come across them on Spotify, um, and I just loved their sound. They're sort of this fiery, outlaw country-sounding uh, girlfriend to band, and I had finished Big Time Small Shot, um, and I knew that I wanted it to feel like, you know, like a takedown song, but in a very, like, Nashville of the 60s or early 70s kind of sound mm -hmm. and knew they could nail it if they wanted to, and so I reached out to them, and they loved the song, and it was just a great fit. It's a great um, and that just, you know, that was kind of the way, that's the way it, it all happened with everybody. It was all about reaching out to people who we thought would work for it and seeing if they liked the song and if they were into it. You know, then I just said, I said, go for it. Do as much as you want, and then I'll figure out where to, you know, where to put it later. And it worked. It really worked. It really, really worked. Uh, to dive just a little bit into the specific songs that we've played today, um, mm -hmm. you know, Orange Blossom Child, to me, feels kind of like a coming-of-age story. Was that your intention? Yes. Yes, for okay. sure. That that song was the first one I wrote for the album, and it also sort of, the, the moment I put the guitar down, when I finished writing that song, I knew there was an album there. Mm. Like, wow. that was the Kickstarter for mm -hmm. the whole thing. Um, I didn't know if I could write something that leaned as petty as that one does, you know? Um, and I wanted to pull in some of the other aesthetic bits, but it was all about those late nights. Like it says in the liner notes where you got nowhere to go, but you want to get there fast. <laughs> um, and it's really about being an adolescent coming of age in, you know, rural wild Florida and being a kid that doesn't really fit in. You know, my, my best friend Jennifer and I, we were sort of misfit kids in that in that time mm -hmm. you know most folks were and there's nothing wrong with you know wanting to get married young and have babies and there's nothing wrong with being a cheerleader and there's nothing wrong with being popular but i was none of those things <laughs> yeah it ate you, I, it ate you. I, yeah yeah i was the opposite of those things uh and so was my friend jennifer and we would just get in my dad's jeep and dream our big dreams and drive around and have those deep conversations that the teenagers are so good at, you know? Yeah. Um, and Jennifer didn't really get to do a lot of the things that she dreamed of doing. And it was kind of my way of, I don't know, honoring that friendship. She was always so proud of me. I'm so proud of these songs. And I wish she would have been able to hear me play that song live before she passed away. But, Unfortunately, she was very, very sick last year and did not make it, didn't make it through the fall, but so she lived sorry. on. I'm she, so sorry. Yeah. Why? Well, so was that when you were, because, you know, your your influences writing-wise, uh, I mean, I love Mary Oliver the and, and Annie Dillard, mm -hmm. Patti mm -hmm. Smith, you know, such heavy hitters, but they weren't mm -hmm. afraid to dive into that mysticism and deep ecology right. and environmentalism, geography, women's empowerment. Right. I just so was that kind of part of your uh, not fitting in because you were digging into stuff that nobody, yeah a hundred percent yeah you know I was a kid who was reading like Edgar Allan Poe in middle school and <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can't imagine how well that went over I mean just like stuff stuff like that reading Shakespeare for fun you know 
getting really deeply into um I went through a really heavy Bob Dylan poetry phase and then that led me to like Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and then into Patti Smith and uh, just you know I, I read a ton of existential literature in college and just yeah I was always kind of that kid like the deep thinker and for me, relaxing was, I, I can remember distinctly, I spent an entire vacation reading Tolt Joy for fun. <laughs> <laughs> for fun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> reading Anna Karenina for fun <laughs> of the Wake House. And that, yeah, for sure. That's definitely, uh, that is just like the lens that I tend to see life through. And those authors have influenced me, you know, Annie Dillard that you mentioned I go back to her essays over and over again. All three of those women, actually. I go back to Annie Dillard's The Writing Life. She talks about the line of words, you know, being a hammer that taps against the walls of your house um, and not being afraid to knock out the load-bearing walls. That, that, that is most often where the good stuff is found. You know, Mary Oliver talks about, you know, um, how we need airline pilots and we need poets you know, we need people to think our deep thoughts and feel our big feelings and, and to help us grow toward each other and to remind us to be present. Patty Smith, my gosh, oh. she's, I just, one day, I just want to like go for a walk through Prospect Park in New York with Patty Smith and just listen to her talk yeah. because she is so good at seeing the mystical and the sacred in the everyday mundane. And that is something I really aspire to, to be so present that I can see every single movement of the day as sacred and beautiful and worthy of, of really being here for it. Um, and all of that, all of three of those women for sure. And then uh, fourth would be Wendell Berry's writing. Uh, it all flows into my writing big time. They've influenced me more than any musician has for sure. Although I guess Patty Smith is a musician too great writer uh, some of those essays well you know mm -hmm. I, I think I, I can hear it and and, and well even even literally because um, we are gonna close out with Jesus save me on the radio yes yes, right? yes. Um, so that yes. line from Annie um, teaching stones to talk now when I read that 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 tells me it's about the stories that the land can tell us would that mm -hmm. I guess everybody's can interpret their own but what does that mean for you, teaching stones to talk? Well, okay, I'm going to get very meta here, and I'll try to not be too long-winded. Uh, the essay that really inspired the narrative of that song um, is the essay called Teaching the Stones to Talk, and it's from one of Annie's books, and she's talking about an eclipse that she and her husband went to, and as Annie Dillard is prone to these very um, lush, detailed graphic descriptions. So when she sets a scene, she brings you into a scene so completely that you're living the moment with her and her husband. You live this moment where suddenly the sun has been eclipsed and the and everyone on this hillside there in the Pacific Northwest, I believe it's Mount Rainier, I might be misquoting that, um, but they're on the side of this mountain watching this eclipse. And she says when it's blotted out, everyone in the crowd just gasps. And mm. she looks around and everyone's turned gray. And all of a sudden she's got this vision in her mind of just the march of humanity through time and how we're all different. But we're all here for like this little flash of a moment. 
and she's looking around at her, the face of her husband and he's grayed out by the lack of the sun and how he could be alive at any time across millennia. And here we are asking the same questions. And that idea of how life is sort of this cycle that we each get to live as individuals and yet we have so many shared experiences and so many things stay the same and you know what what should we leave behind from our past and what should we take forward and just the honesty of of real presence that's really what I wanted to get at in that song and the song is centered around experiences of being a a kid in youth group in a small town in Florida and having all these questions, you know, it, that speaks to that first song too. Like I, I didn't quite fit, right? Mm-hmm. I always had all these big questions. It seems like it, it, it was never appropriate for me to ask anyone about, but I experienced, you know, some really deep, beautiful communal moments with my friends and in nature and with my maker during that time. And then that's sort of how, I got to the lyrical content of that song. Okay. Um, was just thinking back to that, like the duality of existence. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Ah, wow. That's thank you for that insight because I was actually found that little clip from Annie Dillard about the eclipse in the Yakima Valley, mm-hmm. and and it was just so beautifully written. And mm-hmm. um, as I was kind of trying to get a grasp of that, so I appreciate the kind of insight because I wasn't quite sure. Goodness gracious. Well, and, yeah, and that's my take on it, you know. I mean, someone else might get something else from it, but that's what I got from it, for sure. Cool. We um, are going to need to wrap it up, unfortunately. Uh, we're gonna, but I'm going to close with the hard way. And, you okay. know, I know myself, uh, and I think I've, I've talked to some friends, and it seems like a lot of folks feel like, <laughs> why do we always take the hard way? A lot of us can relate mm-hmm. to it, but I understand this, this song is actually very deeply personal you could you tell us about Mm -hmm. that well um this song took me a number of years to be able to even write it down because it centers around um a moment that i very nearly didn't survive and i my fallopian tube ruptured while i was nursing my daughter um i think this may have been eight years ago now um and she was about eight months old and I thought I was miscarrying, but it turned out I, I, I wasn't. It was so much worse than that. And um, I somehow survived uh, bleeding internally for about five days before the doctors figured out that, no, this is a very, 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 very serious thing. And I had to rush to the hospital. And it, it, it still today feels very fresh. You never forget, you know, being told to kiss your kids and you might not come home. Oh, my God. And... And that's what happened. I, and I went to the hospital and um, they performed a surgery on me and uh, I survived. Uh, I'd lost like three liters of blood. I'm sorry, this is very graphic, but this is mm-hmm. for real what happened. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was, it, it really woke me up to how, I mean, you know, you say all the cliches, right? But things are cliche for a reason because it's a common experience. And when your life is very nearly gone and then you wake up again, I'll never forget that feeling of being able to breathe because breathing was the hardest thing for me during those five days when I was 
going back and forth and having blood work and, and, and all of that stuff and they couldn't figure out what was going on with me. And that was all because I was awake. Like the miracle was that usually when you rupture your fallopian tube, you bleed out and if you don't get to the hospital right away, you're gone. But I was awake. Wow. <laughs> Inexplicably, I was awake. I was in horrendous pain, but I was awake. And because of that, um, it threw them for a loop. And then, you know, they finally got me in and had a life-saving operation. And when I was able to breathe again, I woke up and I came to and I was breathing and I was just like, I'm alive. Like, this is, this is a miracle. And that was the beginning of where I'm at today. I mean, not with my music, with my life. My music flows out of my life. And, um... Yeah, it's eight years, you know, and I was finally ready to write that down. And I was afraid to release that song because it is kind of a brutal song, you know? Yeah. yeah. But we don't talk about these things enough, I don't think. I agree. And so I just went for it and hoped for the best. And that song has resonated more than any of the other 10. So. Well, you, you hit a chord, and um, obviously you, you were dead on for knowing that it needed to be feeling like it wanted to be out there. It needed, should be mm-hmm. talked about, and um, to thank mm-hmm. you for your courage in that and uh, putting it out there. It's just a, a be- beautifully painful, poignant story, but important one. Um, on that note, and I it's think... a hopeful one. And a hopeful one, and here you are. This is really cool. Thank you. Um, well, before we get to the hard way, uh, I want to make sure folks know... How to get in touch with you, follow you on socials, like say, mm-hmm. Kurt, with your music tours and all that. What do they need to know? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm easy to find because it's just my name is my handle. So Van, V-A-N, Plating, P-L-A-T-I-N-G. Uh, my website is always being updated. Um, I have merch available and new merch coming in the store. But please do find me on socials. Click the follow button. Find me on Spotify. I know everybody's got opinions about Spotify because they don't pay us at all, really. But it really does help us. If you click that follow button, the more people that do that, the more folks hear these stories and hear the music. And the sooner I can come out to places like Lincoln, Nebraska and play some songs for you in person. <laughs> well, I so hope please that... find me and interact. Okay. <laughs> and come on out to Lincoln then. Love to have you here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again so much for your time, Van. This is uh, Twyla Twang. and women's show and we just spoke with uh, Van Plating on the Sweethearts and Badasses of Americana and Beyond interview series and here is her song The Hard Way featuring Reckless Kelly. Mm 